Back in 2019, a Canadian research and polling organization found that 25% of Canadians said that they hated their political opponents. 25%, that's one in four, it's pretty big. And get that this was back in 2019, that's pre-COVID. So question, what do you think that number is today? After all that we've been through the last few years, do you think it's higher than 25%? Do you think it's lower than 25%? You can say in the chat, thumbs up, thumbs down, higher or lower. What percentage do you think it would be? Personally, I, I tend to be pessimistic with these things. I would guess 50%. I think twice as many people now would say that they hate their political opponents in Canada compared to three years ago. That's me, that's my take. I wasn't able to find any current data on this, so I can't actually give you a firm answer. But that's what I think it would be now. We're twice as polarized, in my opinion. There's so many things to be polarized about. Let me, let me just say some of the things that were polarized about in the last few years. Lockdowns, obviously, vaccine mandates, mask mandates, the trucker co convoy, perhaps uh, global warming. Abortion is also a hot topic again. Black Lives Matter movement, pronouns with transgenderism, the Me Too movement, the indigenous mass graves that were discovered, the Every Child Matters, diversity, equity, and inclusion, Donald Trump, Justin Trudeau, critical race theory, healthcare, oil pipelines. Have I missed anything? You can feel just the tension as we say more and more and more of those topics. And here's the interesting part. On, these, on, on every one of these issues, people on opposing sides view this topic and those who disagree with them as exis existential threats to their very way of being. So if I say the phrase, these people are what's wrong with the world today, you don't know which issue I'm talking about. I could be talking about any of these. And you also don't know which side of the issue that I'm on. Because both sides talk about each other like this. Or if I say, these people are ignorant of facts and logic. You still don't know which group I'm talking about. They only think about themselves. They believe fake news. They just believe whatever they're told. They're selfish. They're destroying our country. This sounds like people from either viewpoint on any issue talking about those they disagree with. Things have become more tense and more polarized. I would guess, just from judging the temperature of the culture, different scholars look at this and they try and research different reasons why this may be the case. Some attribute this to social media itself. On social media, if you like something, then the algorithms are more likely to show you more of what you like. So you're more likely to be shown things you agree with and less likely to be shown things that you disagree with, which kind of creates a bit more of an echo chamber that they call. You're just being shown more and more and more reasons why you're right on all these issues and it can kind of polarize you or make you view a certain topic more strongly on it than perhaps you naturally would. That kind of plays into some of our human cognitive biases. There's something called confirmation bias, which means that we're more likely to overvalue or to be uh, nicer to evidence that confirms what we already think. And there's also disconfirmation bias. We're more likely to undervalue evidence that disconfirms things that we think. So it seems like social media, the, the nature of the algorithms can already exacerbate a difficult element of just human inquiry in general. So that's one thing. Also in Canada, some political scientists say that 
political parties in Canada tend to be a bit more centrist in general. So when it comes to elections, you have to polarize the differences between you. You have to put it very, very strong because perhaps we're, we're more similar than we are different. That's just food for thought in some ways. But we've all experienced the effects of this polarization in our lives. Real life friendships that end because of arguments that happen on Facebook or celebrations with family and friends that can get nasty as soon as a certain topic comes up. And we're heading into another provincial election season. So it's the season of lawn signs. Uh, Pride month is also coming up and we could run into the same exercise with church related concerns. So in the church, things seem to be more polarized regarding women in ministry or same-sex marriage or social justice or the mark of the beast and end times, the color of carpets. How many ministries a church should be running, styles of worship, clothing that pastors wear, the inerrancy of the Bible, pacifism, atonement theories, models of hell, I could go on. Each side accusing the other of being unbiblical, being unfaithful to the scriptures, not standing upon God's word, not following the example of Christ, but simply mirroring the faults of culture. And so the tension for the church today, for us here and now as followers of Jesus, seems to be this. God commands me to love my neighbor, but culture commands me to hate my neighbor. God commands me to love my neighbor, those around me. Culture commands me to hate those around me. That's putting it in pretty strong, stark terms. But if you want something, us as the church, we've got to work for it. We're going to have to work against the easy momentum in our culture of going the other way. We have to fight for unity, if you want to put it in stark terms. So the question for us today, as we're trying to study and walk out the second greatest commandment that Jesus said, you should love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If we're fighting to love our neighbor, the question is this, how do we fight for unity? How do we fight well? How do we fight for unity in a world where I seem to be commanded to hate my neighbor, but God says there's a better way to live. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 as we look at God's word for the source of reconciliation in a polarized world. Currently, we're in week five of our series, Made New to Renew, looking at our growth as Christians, as we grow in our holiness and our sanctification and our conformity to the image of Christ. This actually leads to our stewarding, serving, and cultivating of the world around us today. So we're trying to become more like Christ, and that's good for the world, because the world could use some more of Jesus. Amen? I can't hear you. I'm going to assume you're with me on this one. That's good. So following these, we've looked at money, we've looked at work, and then we looked at rest, the importance for rest and being unhurried in the world today, how hurry is an inhibiting factor to loving God and loving others. And so if we're free from hurry, if we're in this posture of rest, now we're free to love God and love others. And last week we looked at how do we love God with all of our person? How do we see him in the scriptures? How do we encounter him vibrantly in prayer? How do we see him in all the world around us in creation? So this week we're looking at how do we love our neighbor as ourselves. And if you remember last year, during this time, the weeks between Easter and Pentecost, we kind of did a whole series on this. It was called Finding Common Ground. And we witnessed this fact that the world is polarized. Everyone's at each other's throats. So how do we 
act as peacemakers in the world? How do we go out? How do we find common ground with those that we disagree with? How do we speak well? How do we listen well? How do we navigate disagreement on moral issues, on non-moral issues? And so if you want to hear about those things in in-depth, I encourage you to go online, check out our YouTube page, and look at those sermons. Today is going to be a little bit more focused. It's going to be a little bit more focused on one thing in particular, and it's more of an in-house issue. How do we fight for unity specifically within the church? And there's perhaps two reasons for focusing on this in particular. One, we didn't focus as much on it in our series last year. We looked outward. We're going to look inward in this. But secondly, I would contend that fighting to love our neighbor within the church is perhaps conceptually prior to loving our neighbor outside of the church. Because how are we supposed to share the love of the body of Christ, the love of Christ himself, if we don't have it within the church? How am I supposed to go out and love my neighbor, but come back to church on a Sunday and hate my neighbor in the church as well? So I think that conceptually it's actually prior, that the unity within the church will overflow and spill out into the world around us today. So we must learn to fight for unity within the church. A house divided cannot stand. We're called to be salt and light. Salt is a preserve. It actually keeps things from rotting. But as Shakespeare would say, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. So the first step in learning to fight for unity is this. Recognize that we already have it. We already have it? Yes. I'll prove it to you. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and, we, and, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul is going to get practical in a few verses, but he lays out the fact, and actually this, this whole thing is one long sentence, that both Jews and Gentiles, all peoples, are dead in their trespasses, alienated from God. That our greatest problem isn't that we have all of these other things that we disagree with. Our greatest problem is that we are alienated from God and all of our other problems in the world, internally, externally, with those around us, follow from this thing. We are alienated from God, separate from him, not in right standing, not in communion with him. And everything falls from that. We've rebelled against him and we've justly incurred the consequences of our sin. This is kind of, we get what we want. The terrifying reality that God will give us what we want. That's the language Paul uses in Romans 1. And now we are alienated. So if we want to talk about love and peace and reconciliation, this is the conceptual framework that we start with. So Paul lays the groundwork. Now let's keep reading. Verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not results, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I can stop right there. You, you can all tune out now. That's a good word for today. Paul is saying that we have been made new, raised to life. You can't use any stronger language. You were dead, now you're alive. Raised to new life with Christ, seated with him. So we have been given a new life. And now he's going to show that, yes, God has given us all new life. And in doing so, one of the infinitely glorious repercussions of this is that he has made a new people. He has given us a new life, and this new life that we live is as a new people. So let's keep reading now in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, that's us who are not genetic, biological descendants of Abraham, that's us. You Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Gentiles were not just outside of the cultural hegemony, it's not just that, you know, they were treated unjustly and poorly in Jewish culture, though that was true, perhaps there was discrimination, we could argue from that. But he's saying that you were alienated from Christ, and now you have been brought near. Make no mistake, this is temple language that Paul is using. In the temple, there were many layers or rings, and the inner space was the Holy of Holies, and one priest could go there once a year. And outside of that was the temple where the priests operated and worked. And outside of that was the court where the Jews could go in. First it was Jewish men. This is where the Jewish men would worship. And then outside of there was where the Jewish women would worship. And outside of that was a court where Gentile proselytes, Gentile converts could come. But they were alienated and far off. And now he says, you who were way back there, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who are distant and far off and dead have been alive and brought near. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Four times we're going to see this, that Christ is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This is where we get our solution for our question today. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. We're going to return to this. This is our solution for today. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's family language. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Isn't that good? Isn't Ephesians good? I want to do Ephesians. I won't get ahead of myself. we got to finish Romans, but oh man, that'd be good to go through Ephesians. That's my preference. So he's saying now, we are one people. We have all been raised together with Christ. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And we are one. We are in Christ, and Christ is love. And this breaks down the walls of hostility. Specifically here, he's talking about the walls of hostility, the generations of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. This ethnic tension that's really hard to make a modern equivalent of today. These people that were at odds, that hated each other, that looked down. The Jews looked down on the Gentiles. Instead of bringing the gospel to them, they thought that their possession of the law made them better than them. And he said, there is now no hostility. There is no distinction. So we share this. We share the love of Christ. We share in the unity of the Trinity, actually. We have the Spirit in us. That's a whole other sermon from last year. Pentecost last year, we talked about that. But we are the life and the love that overflows from the Trinity. That's creation itself. So do you see how this frees us from hate and frees us for love? Because in our church, in Bayview Glen, God be praised, we come from different ethnicities. Correct? Maybe we come from ethnicities that have had conflicts in the past. Maybe some groups have mistreated others. History is rife with that. Do you see the parallels for us today? Maybe there's war and division. Maybe we stand on different political positions within Bayview Glen. I would guarantee it. How do we find reconciliation? Maybe we come from different church backgrounds. We have different theological positions. Where's our peace? Where's our reconciliation? How do we reconcile? We recognize that we have been unified in Christ. Galatians 3.23 says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a beautiful truth. Now let's not go further than what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that your gender doesn't matter. He's not saying that your race doesn't matter. He doesn't say that your socioeconomic status doesn't matter. He's not saying those things. Okay, God made us a diverse and beautiful people, but he's saying that in Christ, in the family of God, we aren't treated according to these things. We are treated according to the righteousness that we have received by Christ through grace himself. So we want to push this a little bit more. In Christ, perhaps there is neither conservatism nor liberalism. Did that sting a little bit? There's neither socialist nor capitalist. Ooh. Well, I'm getting on some sore stuff. Perhaps there is neither egalitarian nor complementarian. Are you mad yet? I'm getting emails this week. Could we go further? There is neither Calvinist nor Arminian, Pentecostal or Baptist. There is neither anti-vax or triple-vax. We are one in Christ. I'm getting emails for this. Romans 8 uses this language of family. We have been brought into the household of God. We have received the status of sonship. This is why the church uses the language of brothers and sisters. Now, why does this matter? What's the significance of this? Well, you fight differently with family. You fight differently with family. That's true, right? With family, and let me add, a healthy, ideal family, right? 
We all come from different family backgrounds. You can disagree passionately with your siblings, with your aunts, your uncles, your parents, but you're still family after that. Your disagreement doesn't change that status. You sit down at the same table together. What binds you together as a family runs deeper than your disagreement. You still argue, feelings still get hurt, apologies still need to be made, there still needs to be healing, but there is never a question about the status of family. You are born into it. And as Christians, we are born again. We are in Christ and we are in one body and there are family members, many members of this one body. Now, as soon as we use this language of family, things get messy, right? You may have a messy family history. In the Bible, families are very, very messy. Look at the very first family. Cain kills Abel, murder of siblings in the very first family. What about Abraham? He sleeps with his servant, gets her pregnant, baby mama drama, older wife and a younger girlfriend, girlfriend gets pregnant, wife can't have a kid, things are tense. Then he drives out the servant girl and their child into the desert. And then his wife does get pregnant. And what happens? Well, he takes his son to the mountain and tries to kill him. Okay, well, maybe things get a little bit better going on. We have Hosea and Gomer. Oh, that's not good. David, King David, his own son, rapes his sister, and they go to war over that? What about Judah? Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law because he thinks she's a prostitute. Oh, sorry, son, I slept with your, your wife. Yeah, in my defense, she looked like a prostitute. No, the Bible is filled with messy families. Yet in the family we see God's great love for the world reflected. The overflow, think about this, let's do some conceptual work here. Out of the overflow of the Trinity, out of the overflow of the love of the Trinity, the love that the members have for each other, out of this overflows the created world. God makes man in his own image. And he says it is not good that man should be alone. And so he makes woman. And out of the overflow of the love for each other, comes children, comes families themselves. And out of the overflow of the love of the family comes the thriving of culture itself. We see God has made family as the bedrock of culture and family is the nucleus for showing the life that comes from the outpouring of love itself. We see this in biological families. We can also see this in the spiritual families of the church itself. So we've seen this, recognize the unity that we have. Now, how do we do this? How do we fight for unity? Don't give the devil a foothold. I shared this last year, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as my German family would say, he was a German pastor and theologian during World War II. He wrote a book called Life Together, outlining practices for Christian community. And he said in this book that when there is inevitably disagreement and quarrels and problems and irritations that develop amongst one another in community, okay, let's just assume that there will be disagreements, there will be irritation, there will be problems we develop with one another. He says to pray for that person. You don't like someone, pray for them. Someone's getting on your nerves, you feel tension or animosity growing, pray. He says this, I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. So when I pray for them, it reminds me of their standing before God and also of my standing before God, of my need for grace 
and of their need for grace. And the fact of Ephesians 2, that I was alienated from God, dead in my sins and brought near by the blood of Christ. And the same is true of them, that I am equally in need of God's grace and forgiveness every day as they are. He goes on and he says this, if my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sin of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. How can I possibly serve another person in unfeigned humility if I seriously regard his sinfulness as worse than my own? So now my posture goes from contending against them to contending for them. Prayer gives us God's perspective on ourselves and on this person. Let me share an example of this in my own life. I was on a team of Christians on a trip to a very difficult part of the world. It's actually, for many years, this has been considered the most hostile nation to Christianity. And I'm very familiar with the concept of spiritual warfare, the fact that Christians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. But I was very naive to what it actually looked like. I expected perhaps, you know, snipers on the rooftops to come after me and my Bible would stop the bullet, you know, something out of a Denzel Washington movie. But what happened was much more subtle and much more sinister and much more humbling. So I was in this country for a month and over the course of the month, I became exceedingly more irritable and cynical. I was really annoyed and easily bothered by other people on my team. I was critical of the people leading the trip, seeing all the things they were doing wrong. I was brooding over the ways that I was just suffering from their lack of organization. I was being inconvenienced because they uh, sought to foresee that this would happen or this would happen or they didn't think of how that would impact me. How dare they? And I was extremely close several times to absolutely going off, to losing my cool and snapping on the team members. By God's grace, I didn't. But I was absolutely in a terrible mood for the whole month. And I'm sure my attitude affected the team. I can guarantee it. Once I got home, as happy as could be, thought nothing of it until I was reading Ephesians 4. And all of Ephesians 4 is about unity in the body of Christ. And in the NIV translation, the wording is like this. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. That hit me like a ton of bricks. My anger, my immaturity, my disunity was a foothold for the devil to try to immobilize me and my team. I was the devil's foothold in my team because of my refusal to acknowledge and fight for the unity in Christ that we already had. At my worst, I have the temperament of a grouchy old man. So next year I went back to the same country. I had the knowledge of how uh, the weakness in my heart was a foothold for Satan to take down my team. And sure enough, second trip, I started feeling the same way. I started feeling it again. And I started praying hard, really, really hard. And the pushback that I got was actually even more of the people to be upset about and the things to be upset about. It was actually more the second year. And that's the problem. 
The cynic is always right. The problem with all this is that there's always sufficient justification to be bitter, to be upset, to feel like a victim. Not that there aren't legitimate victims, but in my case, I always had plenty of justification to feel like I was being mistreated. And the more I prayed against it, the more I felt like there were ample opportunities to be upset about it. But I prayed and I prayed hard for the people and the circumstances that were bothering me. And I slowly began to feel my heart posture change. It's not perfect, nothing changed overnight, but as I was begging God to give me his love for them and also interceding for them, praying that God would protect them, that God would grow them, that God would be gracious and merciful to them, he's been gracious for me, I felt my heart slowly changing. And the difference in my ability to serve my team and the people we were actually there to serve that second year is incomparable. It's absolutely night and day difference. Here's the scary part. I still feel this flare up in me now. I've become cognizant of at least my sinfulness in this one area. And when it does, I have one line of defense and it's on my knees. So to return to our original question, how do we fight for unity? The first thing that we've seen is that we must recognize that we already have it. Recognize that it is ours and we fight to maintain it. We fight to maintain the inheritance of this gift. And when we do this, when we recognize this, when the church proclaims the unity in the body of Christ and fights for it, it actually renews the world around them. Back in 2012, I was uh, in Rwanda. This was for a different trip, 2012, 2013, around that time. And when I was there, I learned about the Rwandan genocide. This was back in 1994, where the Hutus, over a month, brutally murdered close to a million of the Tutsi people. It was not fast, it took place day by day, very slowly, and the world watched by and did nothing. I visited a church where nuns told the Tutsi people that they could come and hide out, and they filled the whole church with people, they locked the door, and they burned it to the ground. We walked through underground rooms where they organized and piled the bones as high as the ceilings. You had to shuffle through sideways, and there were piles of femurs, tailbones, skulls along the way. You're shuffling through these piles of bones from the genocide. People on our team, as they're shuffling through, just breaking down, weeping and screaming. Very, very destructive stuff. We went to Hotel Rwanda. If you've seen the movie, this is a hotel where they tried to hide people during the genocide. And the the person who ran the hotel during that time spoke with us when we had our meals there. I spoke to people in churches and they all started slowly telling the story and putting in pieces of the puzzle of how they put this nation back together. There's a journalist who described it like this. Never before in modern memory had a people who slaughtered another people or in whose name a slaughter was carried out been expected to live with the remainder of the people that was slaughtered completely intermingled in the same tiny communities as one cohesive national society. And they started telling stories and putting together their experiences of how this nation was put back together after a genocide and these peoples are still expected to live together. And they started telling the story in different parts of the country, different places, different people saying, the only thing that got me through was learning how to forgive them because Jesus forgave me all over the country, I was hearing the story of people saying, if it wasn't for Jesus, I don't know how I was going to do this. One of the people that actually led this healing, I didn't meet him, but he had the most articulate and comprehensive description of this, was Celestin Musakura. 
Musakura. I'm saying that wrong, <laughs> but Celestin. And he led this African leadership and reconciliation ministries. He described it like this. He was in seminary when the genocide broke out and he came back to Rwanda right after the genocide had ended. And he felt God leading him to offer forgiveness to the people that had perpetuated these murders. People that had murdered friends of his, family members of his, God was calling him to go to them and offer forgiveness to them and extend forgiveness to their families as well. Even other Christians that had perpetrated this violence. And he talks about how it tore him up inside, how there was no desire in him to do it, but he felt God leading him to do it. And he speaks of befriending these people. He said this, I started to take some of the killer's kids to school. I ended up caring for their children as if they were my own kids. And as he started doing this, the Rwandan authorities actually put him in jail, beat him, tortured him, worried that he was going to stir up tribal violence again. But eventually they began to support his work in this work of forgiveness, this ministry of reconciliation, because of the unity and forgiveness that we have in Christ, came together. He tells stories of families, of the murderers and those who were murdered, worshiping together in the same church. How a woman whose husband was killed befriended the wife of the man who murdered her husband. These stories of reconciliation and unity happening in Rwanda because of the unity within the church, that they recognized it and they fought for it. So the unity of the church, it's not some cute, side, optional thing that's not really of great concern. It is absolutely imperative to the new life that we have as Christians and the renewal of the world. The body of Christ is the soil, the family, is the soil in which culture thrives. And soil and dirt is messy. Family is messy. But it's where God loves to show his perfection and the power of the new life that we have. So Bayview Glen is about to enter another new season of new growth, developments, and change. Of course there's change. The body is a living thing. What else did you expect would happen? And in the midst of this, as we're in these seasons of growth and transition, may we be marked as people that walk in the unity that we already have and fiercely fight to maintain it. So for us today, where in your life do you need to recognize this unity that we have in Christ? And where do you need to fight for it? Who do you need to pray for? And if you don't know, would you ask God to reveal this to you today? We're gonna to take this next minute and let's pray. Ask yourself, where do you need to recognize this unity? And where do you need to fight for this unity? As we've seen over these past three weeks, that God invites us to be still, to behold, and to be love. Church, may we be that today.